morning, let's uh, turn to the book of Joel today. And uh, last week we talked about the book of Hosea as we entered into the minor prophets. And I talked to you how that the minor prophets were uh, not minor in the scope of material they have, but rather in the, uh, uh, in the how length of the chapters and the books themselves. And the book of Joel is just three short chapters. And unlike Ezra, Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, there's not really much, I mean, Isaiah, you know, you get a little bit of background about Ezekiel, you get some background about him, Jeremiah, even Hosea. But when it comes to Joel, he, there's not much known about him. In fact, the only thing that's really said is his father's name there in, in chapter 1, verse uh, 1. But uh, you can't really trace him. You can't really figure out for sure who he is. Bible doesn't say a lot about him, but yet the book contains tremendous principles and concepts and truths that uh, help us put our Bibles together in, in, in so many different areas. Uh, Joel writes before the exile, and of course he writes again to the ten northern tribes, which are commonly called Israel in your Bible. Historically, Joel again zeroes in on Israel's sin, as they all do. He talks about God's coming judgment. He follows the consistent theme of, of all of the prophets, whether they be major or they're minor, and that is Israel's spiritual condition and the coming fate of Israel because of their disobedience and the rejection of God and the Word of God. Historically, it's, uh, it just follows the same line uh, as these books do. Inspirationally, again, the book of Joel for us reminds us of the great parallels between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, the church. We've talked about them week after week. I don't think there's been a week gone by that we haven't made reference to it. The reason why I do that is because the price of learning is repetition, and you need to understand over and over again how that, uh, the impact of that, because that's really how you learn about the current events that you're in and, and the things that are going on in the world. And, and inspirationally, you, you see all of those parallels. You can't miss them. And then, of course, doctrinally. And doctrinally... Uh, these three little chapters hold some of the greatest doctrinal concepts on the second coming of Christ, the tribulation, and the millennium. You'll find the phrase, that day, that little, that little phrase, that day, eight times in three chapters. And, of course, uh, it really becomes the theme of Joel, just as it becomes, it is the theme of the Bible. Now, last week I made a statement to you. I don't know if you remember it or not, but I made a statement on the minor prophets. And I told you how that from a uh, writer's standpoint, from a commentary standpoint, the, uh, the, uh, the, the minor prophets are the hardest books in the Bible to try to figure out. Uh, I've got a book that, uh, that I use from week to week, a couple of books that I use. that they're not, very, they're not very good for really learning things about the Bible, but they'll give you historical breaks down, give you dates and information that you need to have at hand there that I don't have written in my Bible as you put something together, just so you can put it in a historical context. And it was amazing to me, I kind of looked through them this week, and as you went through all the books of the Bible up to the, you know, up to the minor prophets, there was, oh, eight or seven or eight chapters on just material, breaking it down. When you suddenly came to the minor prophets, you got one page, maybe. One of them was a half a page. Simply because these men uh, that tell us that they're the hardest books in the Bible don't understand these books. And i got to tell you that uh, I'm not saying you can place everything in them. But I know this. These minor prophets are some of the greatest material that you're ever going to find, um, ever going to find anywhere in the Bible that really helps you put together the Bible. And I've learned over the years, you know, that... Uh, uh, these minor prophets, with all the material that's in them, are really the keys to understanding the great prophecies of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what the problem is. Before I tell you that, let me say this. I said this Thursday, uh, Thursday night in Bible study. I told you that you're going to grow two or three years today in an hour. Now, I know that most of you really follow along and try to learn your Bible with what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. I chose this route because I knew where I was going, and I knew that if I ever 
we ever get to the point that we're going to get into next year where we start really focusing on people, and I start to train you in the specific areas for that, I know that uh, you're going to have to have a foundation in the Word of God. So that's why we launched onto this, and I watch things. I, I watch people. I, I, I see where people put their emphasis, and I know that many of you are, are trying to learn the Bible as fast as you can to the best of your ability, and uh, you're making good progress with that. So I made the statement that what I'm going to give you today in this one little book probably took me four or five years to learn and put together in my own personal Bible study. And, uh, but I want to show you the problem we have with the minor prophets. Because when you start to go out and you start to listen to uh, men talk about it, you start to get books on it and start to read it, you're going to see a problem. And I want you to see this problem. You talk to the average Bible teacher. Call in the Bible answer man sometime on the radio. Ask him this question. Uh, talk to your average Bible scholar or even your average Bible, your average pastor. And the truth of the matter is, uh, talk to your average Christian. Ask him this simple question. And the simple question is, do you have the words of God? Do you have the absolutely infallible words of God? Now, the moment you ask that question, you're going to watch an absolutely unbelievable phenomenon that takes place. I have been talking to people for 40 years of my life about the Bible. I have been going over things in the Word of God and laying things out. I've been in, in every situation talking with people about every situation in life that there is. And, I, and I, my life is a study of people. My life is a study of personalities and the way people are. Because I know the Bible says, out of the, uh, out of the, out of the abundance of the heart are the issues of life. And I know that if you really want to learn, learn how the Bible works, study people. If you'll just spend your life studying the Bible and working with people, you'll learn more about everything else in the Bible and life that there is than any other way I know how to tell you. Why? Because God made people. And God made people certain ways. And there's not a great diversity of people. There's a lot of people. But people think along the same lines with just variations on that classic theme. When you go through the Bible, and this is all covered in the wisdom books of the Word of God, when you go through the Bible and learn those patterns of character, those traits of the way people are, you have an insight into why people do what they do, think the way they think, and you'll be able to see it in a conversation immediately as the thing begins to unfold itself. I say all that to say this. It's interesting to me when you start dealing with some people about the Bible. And I had this happen just last week, and it reminded me of it. I was talking with a saved man about the Bible who did not agree with everything in the Bible the way he should have. And he was asking a question about a particular deal in the Bible, and we were talking. And when I gave him the answer, it was amazing. And I've seen this happen so many times. It was almost like that and this is hard to explain, and I, but it's almost like when it came to the point where he had to deal with the issue of truth, it was like his, like you went over to a light switch and turned the lights off in a room for just a second and turned them back on. I could actually see in his face and his eyes, I could actually see the truth just go whoop, 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 and over, and he shut it off for a minute and he turned it back on and went on with the conversation and exactly missed what I said. I come around two different ways to try to come back and again. Now I really didn't care if he got the truth or not. I just wanted to see the lights go off and on a couple of more times. And I've seen that over the years that there are some things and I, that people just can't get past. There are some things about this Bible that when you talk to somebody right on the line, you'll just kind of get that for a moment of time, just a, 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 a second. You'll get that blank stare, deer in the road with his headlights look, and then he'll go right on, but you catch it if you're paying attention. When I talk to people and ask them that question about the Word of God, I get the same reaction. You know why? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give you something great here, not because it comes from me, but because it comes from the principles in the Word of God. You know, I, 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 I've always watched how that men who are men of intellect, Men who put more emphasis on their IQ than they do their relationship with God and the Word of God. And you see this in churches. We've all been involved in churches all through your life that when they look for a pastor, the first thing they look for and want to know is where has he been to school? How much education does he have? 
because we have been taught and trained that education is the key to godliness. Little do they know that cleanliness is the key to godliness. But let's don't, let's don't bust them up on that. But they, they, they think that actually the higher you get educated, the more you become educated in the world of Christianity, the more God is pleased with you. And of course, they never stop and look at the man's ability to understand the Bible. Have he's ever won anybody to Christ or has he ever built a church before? It's the first thing they focus on is where you've been to school. And then the second thing was at one of our schools. And that's how it works down through time. They always deal with truth in an abstract, intelligent way, intellectual way. When it comes to the Bible, it's never the personal aspect, but always the abstract assets. When it comes to the Word of God, it's always the intellectual terminology, never the personal. You know what? You see this in John chapter 3, as a matter of fact, when Jesus was visited by a man named Nicodemus who the Bible says was a ruler of the Jews. The Bible says that he came to Jesus by night, and he said unto, them, unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answers them back and says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the, and the, and the, the conversation that ensues from that point of reference is, is unbelievable in, in illustrating my point. Nicodemus... Instead of saying to God, okay, how can I be born again? Instead of saying to God, okay, yeah, okay, tell me how I can make it in my own life if that's true. He goes into the abstract intellectual approach of saying, well, how can a man? He never takes it personally. And that's what higher education does for you when it isn't higher education about one book and all the truth in it. It takes, the, it takes the personal element out, and all you're left is with an abstract concept. And you see this all the time, and this is why men can't get anything out of the book of Joel or the Minor Prophets, and this is why many times men can't get anything out of the Bible at all. They build their elite little clubs. And in those elite little clubs, they, they, uh, they tend to run with people that are like themselves. That's why pastors, most pastors really won't let you into their life. As much as they stand in the pulpit and say, I love you and you're my people, they'll never become down off that pedestal to become one with you. They'll never climb in the same old grimy, dirty, muddy foxhole that you are and fight this battle. Instead, they'll tend to run with their group and their crowd that they all have an elite little crowd. You ever notice police officers and firemen are the same way? And I have the utmost respect for them, but I want to tell you something. Because of who they are and what they do, and, I'm not, and military men are like this too, because of the way they are and what they do, they really don't trust anybody on the outside. And they have formed their own little elite group that, that as you as a, a, as a civilian, so to speak, will never penetrate. They look at what they face and the dangers that they go through, both firemen and policemen and military men, they look at that as putting them in an elite little group, and it certainly does. And they look at you and me as common people differently as they look at their friends and their buddies on patrol or in the firehouse or in the police department. They have a camaraderie together because they have to put it on the line together. And they, in their mind, separate you from them. Not in a bad way, but in a way that they won't allow you to penetrate their culture uh, as policemen because you're not one of them. And you know what? I understand it in that realm of things. I really do. That's why doctors get the God concept. That they think that they, they, they're so busy saving lives, dealing with life, they, they talk in languages that we don't understand. And that's why when you go into the doctor and you sit in his office, he will never, unless he is a rare doctor, he will never treat you as an equal. And I'm not saying in a bad way, but he'll always speak down to you like he's going to be the one that is going to interpret for you what's wrong with you. And he will use a language that you don't understand. And he will speak in words that he has to break down for you. And when you leave there, you're never entirely sure that he told you everything. Because of the fact he can't communicate on the level that you and I are. And it's the same way with, with every professional organization, and it's certainly true with the Bible concept of higher education. Pastors are an elite group. 
And in that elite group, they feel sorry for you because you're not where they're at. But they're glad that you're in their church because no bucks, no Buck Rogers. And you fund the agendas by which they all have to operate. But you'll never get on the same level with them. You will never come where everything is even, that you look at them and they look at you just like you're one and the same and put you on the same level. Because, that, because of this concept. So when you talk about the Word of God with them, or you talk about the absolute infallible Word of God in their life, they always talk about it in the concept of the Word singularly. They'll always take the Word and use it collectively. They'll say the Bible is the Word of God in collective thought. They'll say the Bible contains the Word of God. I even had one man one time who was a doctor in psychology who was a pastor and also was a counselor. And he said to me one time, he says, well, I agree with you, Bob. He says, I believe the Bible, I believe the Bible is truth. He says, but I just don't believe the Bible contains all truth. There's truth outside the Word of God. The moment you take that position, you will never take the Word of God as a personal thing to you. God will never be a personal thing to you. You've fallen into the club of the Nicodemuses and you make everything an abstract concept. When Jesus said to him, you've got to be born again, he takes it in a broad general concept of all mankind. He can't bring it down into his own personal level of where he is at in this spiritual conversation with the Lord. I, I never have figured that out. If you went out and spent $50 million buying a Rembrandt painting, you would not have a picture that contains the work of Rembrandt. You would have the work of Rembrandt. And when it comes to the Bible, I don't have a book that contains the words of God. I have a book that is the word of God. And when you, when you see it in its simplicity, which, uh, which they can never get to, and that is why they can't figure out the books of the Bible. Scholarship always uses Bible in the collective form of the Word. God always uses it in the individual personal relationship of the words, plural. I'll show you what I mean. In Psalms chapter 12, verse 6, it says this. It says, the words, plural, the Lord, are pure words, plural, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Psalms 19.14 says, Let the words... God never uses the word collectively when it comes to something about the Bible for you and for me. Now, he may talk about it singularly in the concept of the Bible, but when he starts talking about the relationship of the Word of God to you and to me, it is never the word. It is always the words, plural. He says, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. John 6, verse 63 said, It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh profit of nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John chapter 8, verse 47, He that of God heareth God's words, plural, not word. When Paul wrote to Timothy in six, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he said, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not the wholesome words, plural, even the words, plural, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to the doctrine which is according to, the, to, to godliness, then he is proud, knowing nothing, but dotting about questions and strife over words. That is the mindset of the intellectual Christian today. And when you ask a man, does he have the Word of God or the words of God, he has been taught to think collectively that the Bible contains the thoughts of God, contains the Word of God, has the great message of God, but he's not trained to think in the personal aspect that this book are the very words of God that God gave those words to you and to me to have. That's why Revelation chapter 21 verse 5 says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, and said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Three warnings in your Bible. One in the beginning of your Bible, one in the middle of your Bible, and one at the end of your Bible. 
The one in the middle, the uh, one in the front is Deuteronomy 4.2. The one in the middle is Proverbs 30, verse 5. And the one at the end is Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 through 19. All three of them deal with one concept. Not changing, not the word, the words of God. And that is a great lesson why men can't get anything out of the book of Joel or the book of Hosea or most of the book of the Bible, especially the minor prophet. That is why they continually talk about how hard they are, and they always take the thing and just break it down uh, as best they can, and all you ever get is the historical and some little uh, superficial, practical, but there is nothing there that deals with the hard meat of the Bible that lays itself out. Now, you all got your bookmarks. On the back of those bookmarks are words. Key words. I've taught you last week about God being consistent. I told you how that the greatest attribute of God was not His holiness, not His death on the cross. The greatest attribute of God was His consistency. Because without God being consistent, the only thing that changes not in a world that constantly changes, you and I don't have anything. Why, everything in this world we talked about the last week changes. What do I need a God that changes for? What do I need a Bible that changes for? What do I need something that evolved to a finer place? Why do I need a Bible that keeps getting refined through evolution by getting a better version, a better version that gets me closer to God, when in actuality all it does is really get me farther away from God? The only concept of God that separates Him from the world and everything in it is that He never changes. Why would a God who never changes write a Bible that constantly does? Now, I, that bothers me. But then, I don't look at God in the abstract. I look at God in the personal. I don't look at God in a concept. I look at God as a person who lives in my heart, who loves me supremely, and wrote everything in his mind in a book to give me his words, plural. Now, when you start coming through, and we're going to take on these, these so-called hard books, and we're going to show you how that the consistency of the words in the Bible. Just like on the back of your bookmark, there are certain words who always mean certain things. And when you find them, you can bank on them that wherever you go, they will, they will lay out for you what the context is, and that's how you work out all of the books of the Bible. But boy, my dear friend, that is certainly how you, hook, you work out uh, the book of Joel. With that introduction in mind, Let's ask God to bless us this morning as we go to His Word. Father, we thank You and praise You for all You do for us. We love You, and we look forward today, Father, to learning some things about Your Word. Help us, Father, to lay out and, lay a, and take apart this great book to make it work for us in everything that we do in our lives. Help us to learn today. Help us to grow. Help these dear people to grow leaps and bounds what it took me. Help them to get quicker, Father, what took me longer to get. And help them, Lord, uh, pull together all the great concepts of this great book in even a faster fashion than I got it. And Lord, we'll thank and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, when you come to Joel chapter 1, uh, in the first couple of verses here, uh, here's what you got. And we're going to see here in just a minute, but you got the plague of locusts. And uh, everybody that writes about the book of Joel, uh, because of the fact they don't follow the consistency, because of the fact they don't follow the Word of God and believe the words, and they're hung up on the abstract, they have to go back in history to try to find some plague back here that the locusts came down and stripped off the, and ate all of the land. And every book that I read always found some place where this was, he was writing because he witnessed a great uh, plague of locusts coming across uh, Egypt. And yet, in actuality, in history, there was never a plague that came down. Because what you're dealing with here is being able to take the Word of God by the words and lay it out by the words and know that he is talking about the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period. And while there was no plague of locusts in uh, Joel's time, there certainly is one uh, at the tribulation period before the second coming of Christ. In fact, when you go on down here, he talks about them having the teeth of lions. Now, if that doesn't give you the inside key, knowing Revelation chapter 9 and rowing all the aspects of the lions, the young lions in the Bible. Here again, it's the words that give you the answer. That you don't have to run around in history trying to find a bunch of grasshoppers. Oh, by the way, did you see the news last night? 
Did you see what hit Israel yesterday? A plague of locusts that are stripping the crops bare. And the NBC, ABC, CBS commentators all said the same thing. Isn't it interesting? But this is exactly what happened in the Bible before God came back and set the land of Israel free. I thought that was noteworthy. Give them a long enough time, and even the unsaved world will catch up to where we're at this morning. But I'm telling you, <coughs> they, this, the locust they have here <coughs> is a picture of what God did in Exodus chapter 10, which is a picture of the tribulation period under Pharaoh. It's a picture of, of Revelation chapter 9, <coughs> verse 1 through 8, when the locust with teeth as a lion come out. And then if that wasn't enough, by the time you get to verse 15, it says this, For alas, the day of the Lord, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and the destruction from the Almighty, uh, it shall come. And you begin to see that very quickly, before you come very far at all in the book of Joel, that the theme of the book of Joel is the second coming of Christ, doctrinally. And this opens up a whole concept of information. And I'll tell you what, when I get down in the dumps, when, I, when life troubles me to the point where I want out of here so bad I can't stand it, I go to the book of Joel, and in a minute I'm going to show you why. And it's going to become your favorite place too, because it's a neat place. But we've got a lot of ground to cover here, and uh, we need to move on here, but I'll talk to you about it here in just a minute. Now, Joel's three chapters is the same theme of the whole Bible, the day of the Lord a concept that has over 800 references in the Bible. Let me give you a little rule of thumb here, and I've given you this before, but it bears repeating. One of the rules of Bible is simply this. Never, uh, never overestimate anything more than God does. When God, when God emphasizes something so many times, then take that as God trying to show you something. Don't ever overemphasize something more than God does, but then don't underemphasize it. Let the Bible put the emphasis on it. And I'll tell you, when you find something uh, eight, over 800 times in your Bible make a reference to, you know that God has put an emphasis on something. And the theme of the Bible, we've talked about before, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key to it is the words. The words. And there's more references than any other subject in all the Bible. Uh, there's more references on the second coming of Christ. We talked about it before. God's day. God's day. God's day. You ever notice how we talked last week how God, I, I laid out a great concept, God has a wife. That wife is Israel. God has temporarily put her away because of her unfaithfulness, and God now has focused on a bride for His church. And if we do everything in the world by, by the Word of God without even knowing it, when you go to a wedding, when you go to a wedding, now, every wedding you ever went to, unless it's just a pagan wedding someplace, but every wedding you ever went to is a picture of Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, you got all the concept there. When somebody put it together, they at least put it together out of the concept of the Word of God. I mean, you got the bride. She's supposed to be in white because she's the virgin. And, of course, the, the tradition is that that day before they get married, he's not supposed... Now, this doesn't happen today because kids have lost the whole concept. But the bridegroom, uh, when I got married, you wasn't supposed to see your bride all day. And then she's, you know, the first time you see her is when you're down the front and she's up, she's up there. And they, 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 you ever notice how they roll down that, that, that white thing? That's a picture of fine linen of the saints. And she walks, and the bride, the groom down here is a picture of Christ. She's the bride. She walks down to him. And then they, they have the marriage ceremony and they become husband and wife as far as the state's concerned and, uh, and how that all lays itself out. And then uh, that's a picture of what Christ is bride and, and Christ is the bridegroom. That's why you got in Song of Solomon chapter 2 where right now he can't see the bride. He wants to get a glimpse of her. But there's coming a day when he's going to say, come up hither and the bride is going to come to him. The rapture of the church. And then God will, have, will, will put the second coming, Joel, and God will now have his wife back. Christ will have his bride. And then they enter into a 1,000 year honeymoon. Now, i got to say this. You've all married, most of you, but even you single people. You ever wonder why they call it a honeymoon? That's the stupidest thing in the world. I mean, why a honeymoon? Now stop and just think about it. I, we use the word without thinking. What is the logical concept of a honeymoon? I mean, why don't they call it a, the great getaway? 
Why don't they call it anything but a honeymoon? That's like, that's like calling something that it has nothing to do with anything, unless you know your Bible. Because you see, when this thing all takes place, God gets his wife back, Christ gets his bride, then we end into a thousand year honeymoon. Honey, type of the word of God. Moon, type of the church. Psalms, type of the church, Isaiah. Reflects the light of the sun, Job 25.5 doesn't have her own light. Moon's a type of the church. The honey's a type of the word of God. When we go down to eternity, it's going to be that book and me as the church forever. And they don't even understand why. They don't understand why. I would never pay for a wedding without understanding all the words in the wedding. I'm, I don't understand why. Honeymoon. That's what me and Christ is going to have. The honey is the word of God. And the moon is the church. And we're going to spend an eternity together when God gets his wife back and Christ gets his bride. That's the book of Joel. The book of Joel focuses on that aspect. Now when you come into chapter 2, the day of the Lord is laid out and defined for you. And again, the key is the words. I'm going to tell you again, more references than any place else in the Word of God. Look at 2.1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, and is nigh at hand. Why, the Bible scholars run around trying to get some, somebody blowing a ram's horn back there, trying to get all of Israel together, because the, the battles come into play. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. Let me tell you something. There's two trumpets in your Bible. One for the church, for the rapture of the church, and one for the second coming of Christ. I don't know if you ever saw it or not, but in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about the voice of a trumpet. He puts the emphasis on the words. The words. The words are given to you. Come up hither. Words. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, talks about the voice of the archangel as a trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 said, The trumpet shall sound. When a trumpet, there's two trumpets in your Bible. One trumpet is for the rapture of the church. And that's the trumpet found in Revelation 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when the church hears that trumpet, when the church hears that trumpet, that voice says, come up hither, the rapture's going to take place. Now, there's another trumpet in your Bible, and we want to go over to, we want to go back to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Let's see this one. And this is worth turning to, so you might want to turn back to it if you haven't seen it before. If you already understand it, don't worry about it. But in Exodus chapter 19, verse 14, it says this. I'm going to read it to you. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. And the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud, so that all the people was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. Nether means lower. And Mount, and mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because of the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, by a voice, by a voice, by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Now, here's what you got. And this looked like a confusing passage, but you want to understand, Joel? Here's what you got. It all breaks the words, the words. First of all, verse 14. Moses, 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 Moses. Moses is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. He's one of the types of the, he's one of the, types of the uh, tribulation saints. Elijah's the other. Both of them get caught up into heaven. Both of them get caught up into, into a type of the rapture or, or the second coming of Christ and the, uh, and the Jews going up at the end of the tribulation period. Elijah goes up in a fiery chariot and here's Moses. Here's Moses. Now look at what it says. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. They washed their clothes. You know why? Because Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 says that the tribulation saints are going to wash their clothes in the blood of Christ. So when he put this story together back there, he tells Moses, make sure they wash their clothes. Moses says, why? God said, don't worry about it, just put it in. But he said, but I don't understand it. Some of them just washed last week. He says, tell them to wash their clothes. But Lord, what's the big deal? We can get moving faster. Because 4,000 years from now, Bob's going to be preaching a message. He's going to lead Exodus chapter 19 to put the end together revelation. Just do what I tell you to do. <laughs> I'll tell you something else. Look at verse 15. And he said to the people, be ready against the third day, third day, third day, third day, third day. Any 
time you find the third day in the Bible, it'll be the second coming of Christ. Two ways in your Bible to mark off time. One is 7,000 years, and the other one is 3,000 years. One of them runs the scope of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, which runs 7,000 years. The other one starts at Calvary and goes 1,000, 2,000, and Christ comes back to the beginning of the third thousand year or the third day. Anytime you find the third day in the Bible, mark it down. We get back to Bible study on Thursday night. If you want me to clarify that? I'll run you through both of them and show you how it works. But look at verse 15 again. Not only the third day, come not at your wives. Come not at your wives. Why? Because the Bible said in Revelation chapter 17, these 144,000 are virgins, no women. So the type has to fit. The type has to fit. Now here we get going. Verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning, type of the second coming of Christ, that there were thunders, second coming of Christ, lightnings, thick clouds upon the mouth, and the voice of the trumpet. See that thing? Now watch this. And the Mount Sinai, Sinai, well, that's the first place somebody's told to take their shoes off their feet for the ground they're standing on is holy in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Second place in Joshua chapter 5 at the Mount of Olives, showing you the first beginning and the ending of the second coming of Christ. When the Lord comes back in the second coming of Christ, he shows up at Sinai, right where he's at. You know why? Because Exodus chapter 19 is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Moses is typing 144,000. He's told them not to come at their wives. They're supposed to wash their clothes. They're supposed to be ready the third day. All types of it. On a day it's in the morning. Second coming. Thunders and lightning. Thick clouds. Uh, Jesus said, as I went up in the cloud, I'm going to come back in the cloud. The book of Acts. And the voice of a trumpet. All right. Verse 18. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke because uh, the Lord descended upon it in fire and smoke. thereof ascended a smoke. And what, verse 19. And when the voice of the trumpet... The voice of the trumpet. He won't just say a trumpet. He wants you to know that that trumpet is a voice that you hear, and it says, come up hither. Three times in your Bible, because there's three parts. The Old Testament saints come up hither, you and me come up hither, and he second, and at the end of the second coming of Christ, where we're at here in Joel chapter 2, second coming of Christ, tribulation saints go up, typified by Moses. Now watch this. Watch this. Look at verse 20. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, second coming. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. Here they go. And Moses went up. Tribulation saints taken out right there at the voice of a trumpet. There's two in the Bible. One for the church, one for the nation of Israel. Now that thing will, be, that thing will bear out more time than you want to take to go through the Bible. I mean, Zephaniah chapter 1, Revelation 19, Revelation 14, Revelation 16, Daniel 2, Isaiah 63, on and on. Jeremiah chapter 50, Isaiah 60, Ezekiel 13. It just never ends as you go through that Bible. And you'll find it over and over and over and over again. Now, with that in mind, look back to Joel chapter 2. Wonder what day this is. Duh. Wonder what day we got here. I'm a PhD. I'm a post hole digger. I wonder what we got here. Blow ye the trumpet. Now, there's two. Let's find out which one this is. In Zion, whoop, can't be me. The sound of the Lord of my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh and is nigh at hand. Bible scholar says, Mr. Fine, Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. He says, oh yes, historically, they did this annually. And this is somebody going up on the hill with a big ram's horn calling the nation of Israel together. Eh, wrong. What you've got here is a picture of God calling him through a big ram horn, and he ain't taking him on top of the mountain. He's taking him up at the second coming of Christ. See, how do you know that? Look at verse 2. Day of darkness, of gloominess, day of clouds, thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountain. Just like we just saw in Exodus 19. A great people and strong, there hath not been ever the light, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. And the land, in the land, and the land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, nothing shall escape them. Well, you got the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 4. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and horsemen, so shall they run. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 is a picture of the armies in heaven that come back with him. That's us. It's us. You've got the second coming of Christ. You've got the trumpet being blown. The nation of Israel being raptured out, typified by Moses, Exodus chapter 19, on a day of darkness and gloominess and clouds. It ain't got nothing to do with some Jew going up there and tooting on his ram horn, getting everybody together. It's a picture of the day of the Lord, the theme in the Bible, and the fire that devours them. And you and me coming back in verse 4. 
Oh, but here's where I get it in. All that stuff I just read you, I know it, I believe it, I love it, but I don't care. I don't care. When I'm down in the dumps, that ain't what I read. When I have my struggles in life and I want out of this old place, that ain't where I go. I hit it verse 5. Verse 5, me, man. And you, if you're saved. You know what you got in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9? You got a picture of this battle. Now, there have been lots of battles down through history. But none of them like this. And all the other battles, you couldn't be footloose and fancy free because you were afraid to get killed. It was like, I'll hide behind this log and you hide over here and I'll shoot at you, you shoot at me and I'll call in an airstrike and this and that. But if I expose myself, I'm going to get killed. Here, it doesn't make any difference. You've got a glorified body. And what you've got in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 is a picture of the battle with, about you and me. Oh, look at this thing. When I get down the dump, this is where I go. When the old world gets you down, this is where I go. Because there's coming a battle where you get to take revenge on the world. There comes back when you come back with Christ, you fight this battle with Him. And here you are. Here I am. I can't speak for you. Here I am. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains, shall they leap. That's me. I'm leaping. Like the noise of a flame, a fire that devour the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. That's me. I'm the wicked come back on white horses, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We're the armies in heaven that follow Him. Before their face, the people shall be much pain. Yeah, laugh at me now. Pain then. I remember one time Rocky Balboa was going to fight Clubber Lang. And he interviewed Clubber Lang and he says, Clubber, what's your prediction of the fight? He looked down that thing with the meanest look and he says, Pain. Somebody says, Hey, Bob, with the great white throne, Joe, the second coming of Christ when you come back, what's your prediction? Pain. That's what it's going to be. You think I'm a pain now? Wait till then, boy. You'll really get a pain. I'm telling you something. A strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. And all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. Can't run now? Well then, why? You'll have a glorified body. You'll leap over fences. You'll jump off, leap off buildings with a total bow. You'll stop locomotives. I mean, you'll be faster than a speeding bullet. I'm telling you what, man, when you get your glorified molecular structure certified body, uh, you drop this carbon-14 unit and you get the glorified body like Christ, there ain't nothing stop you. Boy, you are something behold. And when you leap, you leap. White men may not be to leap now, but wait till then, brother. You're going to go, boy. You're going to make Michael Jordan look like he's a midget. I ain't kidding you. I ain't kidding you. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Oh, and that day, nothing will come between us. You see that? That's the way it ought to be right now in the body of Christ. We're in a warfare. Nothing ought to break our ranks. Nothing. You keep the line tight, and you march straight, and you don't let them break the ranks. Doesn't happen much today. Boy, in that day, they won't break the ranks. Nothing will get through. Neither shall one thrust another, and they shall walk everyone in his path. And when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Oh, I like that part. I like somebody coming up to the Antichrist army with a big old sword and taking a swipe at you, and that thing just going right through you and coming out the other side, and you just laugh at him and grab him by the neck and throw him about 15 billion light years away. They can't hurt you then. They can't kill you then. Right now they intimidate us by blowing people up, cutting people's heads off, doing all these nasty things, these terrible, wicked things. But when that day, when you come back, try as they will, they will not stop the armies of God. They may try, I'm telling you, they may stop the church militant, but they will not stop the church triumphant. Brother, when we come back with the Lord, this is our battle. This is us. This is you and me. This is us coming back on the day when the trumpet blows, when Israel gets called out, and we come back with a glorified body, and we march down through Jerusalem from Sinai, that very great train behind the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Antichrist tries to fight it, we wipe him out. Boy, when I get down the dump, that's where I go. I'm telling you, man, that's the victory. Oh, I'm going to tell you something right now. I know life gets tough, and I know you get discouraged. I know things get you down. I know we all do stupid things. I know life gets you down, but I'm telling you, bless God, uh, you may lose some battles in this life, but I'm telling you a dying truth. According to Joel chapter 2, you may lose some battles of life, but brother, we're going to win the war when we come back. 
What a great, great concept. All laid out by the words. Not the word. The words. Oh, we ain't done in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a powerhouse. I'll give you something else now that's worth having. Go over here to chapter 20, or 2, verse 23. Here's something else. It says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down uh, for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Oh, you want to have some fun? Read what they say about this, if they say anything at all. I had nine books on it. I could only find three of them and never say anything about it. The other one didn't even want to touch it. They don't know what the former and the latter rain is. And an idiot stick that did try to make a feeble fumble attempt just said, oh, it's just talking about the rain when it rained. Well, no kidding. Oh, I'm telling you. Go to Job 37, 6. Go to Hosea 10, 12. Go to 2 Samuel 23, 4. Go to 2 Chronicles 6, 26. Go to 2 Chronicles 7, 12. Go to Psalm 68, 8, 9. Go to Zechariah 10, 1. Go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. No, buy the tape. Get the rest of it. And James chapter 5, verse 7. That's the definitive verse on it. You want the definitive on the former latter rain? It's James chapter 5, verse 7. I'll give you that much. Here's what you got. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that come down in the tribulation period and they get the, uh, and they get the nation of Israel and lead them. When Moses and Elijah come down, they do in the tribulation, <coughs> remember now, tribulation runs seven years. When Moses and Elijah come down, <coughs> they do in their ministry in the tribulation exactly what they did in the Old Testament. That's a key because they study their ministries, you'll find what the tribulation is going to be like. Moses goes up against a man by the name of Pharaoh, type of the Antichrist. He brings the plague, just like he'll do against a real Antichrist. Elijah, he's up against another type of the Antichrist and his religion. Jezebel and Ahab and all those things picture. But those two men, those two men picture for us and lead. They actually come back in the tribulation and lead uh, the nation of Israel. Here's how it works. We have a tribulation of seven years. First three and a half years, everything goes good. First three and a half years, everything goes peace and safety. The Antichrist brings a false peace, makes peace in the Middle East. Everything is great. Uh, everything is fine. And the whole world buys into it. Then in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, which we talked about when we studied the book of Daniel, he breaks that covenant. And he turns on the nation of Israel. They run into the wilderness. And when they run into the wilderness of a place prepared for God, they look up. And just like Paul on the road to Damascus, God reveals himself to them. And God tells him what's going on, tells him what he's doing. And then God sends them the two greatest prophets. The two greatest prophets. The two greatest prophets. Moses and Elijah. And he sends Moses and Elijah down there. And they lead the nation of Israel through that wilderness time. And Moses, he does his deal. He brings the plagues and he turns the water to blood. Elijah, what does he do? He stops up heaven that it doesn't rain. Now, this is a key. It's one of the great keys. This is called the former and the latter rain. When the, first, when the tribulation starts, you got three and a half years. At the middle of that, Antichrist attacks them. They get Moses and Elijah. Elijah, it rains for the last time. Elijah stops up heaven that it does not rain for the last half of the tribulation period. It does not rain for three and a half years on planet Earth. Just like he did back in his ministry that you're told in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 7, the definitive passage. He shuts up heaven that it does not rain. And when it does not rain for three and a half years, the tribulation, the great tribulation takes place, and during that time, you have all the things and all the plagues and all that takes place, and then right before... Right before, right at the second coming of Christ, you get the latter rain. The former and the latter rain is the rain right at the beginning of the last three and a half years. That's the former. And the latter rain is the rain that takes place right at the second coming of Christ. And let me just tell you something. The second coming of Christ is likened to a rainstorm. It's likened to a thunderstorm. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27 says, I saw lightning coming out of the east and shining unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's a rainstorm. It's a lightning storm. The Bible imitates that. Over in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he says, Behold, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, here's what you got. You got clouds. You got thunder. You got rain. You got hail. You got all the ingredients of a great thunderstorm. You know in the Bible God's voice is like in the thunder? 
Yeah, Psalms 29 talks about the great thundering of God. When you get in the book of Revelation, it talks about the thunders out of the throne. In fact, you want to know what's going to happen at the rapture of the church? The answer is given to you in John chapter 12, verse 29, at the rapture. The Bible says that, that they're standing around there, and a voice from heaven says something about Christ. Half of them hear the voice. The other half said, I didn't hear anything. It just thundered. Night of the rapture of the church. Every born-again, blood-washed child of God going to hear come up hither in the voice of the trumpet. The unsaved world is just going to hear a clack of thunder. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't rain for three and a half years, the former and the latter rain. Elijah shuts up heavens, and then there comes a day, a cloudy day, a gloomy day, a day with thunder, a day with rain, a day with hail, a day in the night. A day of absolute terrible storm that ripped from one end to the other. And it's a picture of the judgment of God falling on a cloudy day, on a gloomy day, with the voice of God, the thunder of God, and the hail of God, and the lightning of God, and, the, and all the things that come down to it. And then, at the end of that day, at the end of that storm, hey, you know, every time you've got a picture, every time it rains, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, The invisible things of Him are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Every time you see a thunderstorm, God made that thing to show you a picture of what's going to take place. You know what happens. You know what happens. It gets cloudy. You hear the, you hear the, you hear the light, you see the lightning, then you hear the thunder. And as you get closer to the storm, the lightning and the thunder get closer together. And then when the storm is on top of you, the lightning and the thunder are at the same time, and the rain comes down, the hail comes down, it all comes loose, and I'm telling you what, you get a torrential downpour, and you get lightning and thunder and destruction and all those things, and then when the rain's over, the sun comes out, and you know what? <clears throat> a rainbow appears. There's only two rainbows found in that Bible, Genesis 9 Revelation chapter 14, and they're both pictures of the second coming of Christ. Oh, the tribulation period is like a rainstorm. The former and the latter rain show you the first and the last time it rains in the great tribulation in the middle. And when that latter rain comes, I'm telling you what, it's a picture of Christ coming back because He comes back in the middle of a rainstorm and this earth is in gloominess and clouds and thunder and lightning and hail and the sun comes out and the moon's out and at the end, brother, this is what Isaiah 55, 8, 9, 10, 11 is talking about. Listen to me. You don't have to turn to it. He says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Watch it. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not hither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Oh, here it comes. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Sharp to a sword goes out of his mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing wherein I sent it. For ye shall go out in joy, and led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign, and it shall not be cut off. You know what you got? You got that storm and that latter rain, the second coming of Christ, everything coming down. And when God's judgment falls, then the sky clears. The gra- you know what happens after a good old rainstorm. The grass is greener, the crops are greener, the trees are greener, the air is clear, everything smells clean and you walk out up there on that clear morning, it's just as clear as a bell. You know why? Because the water has washed out the filth of everything on this earth, and temporarily, this old earth is cleaner than it was. Well, that water is a type of the Word of God that's coming out of His mouth when He comes back. And at the end of this rainstorm, that beautiful millennial morning, brother, when the sun shines, the Lord is back, this earth is clearer, cleaner, and this time, it isn't going to go away because the Lord is back. Oh, that book of Joel, some book, man. It's some book. I'll show you another great concept. Chapter 2, verse 28. Look at this one. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And upon your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, we've got to deal with this a minute. Because you're going to run in, if you're going to spend any amount of time at all, probably some of you already have. 
you're going to run into a group of people called charismatics. And the charismatics are all screwed up in the Bible. They get over there in Acts chapter 2, and uh, they get seeing somebody speak with tongues in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. So automatically, they start thinking they got to speak with tongues. And I'll tell you what, I've, I've never met a charismatic in all the years, and I've been talking with them for many, many years. I've never met a charismatic in all my years that one, ever knew anything about the Bible, two, had a complete and total misunderstanding of church history, and never believed that the Word of God was anything as a final authority. I'm telling you what, they all put their experience over what the book says, and that's what they do right here. Because you know what? When you study Acts chapter 1, and they're speaking in tongues, the people look around and they say, Wow, we hear every man speaking in our own language. These guys must be drunk. Paul gets up in verse 16 and he says, Hey boys, these guys aren't drunk, as ye suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You know the quotation of Acts chapter 1, back to? It's Joel chapter 2. You know what the context of Joel chapter 2 is? Second coming of Christ. There wasn't any Christians in Acts chapter 1, or 2, or 3, or 4, or 5, or 6, or 7. They're not first called Christian to Acts chapter 11. There weren't even any Gentiles in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There ain't anywhere to be found. He's dealing with the nation of Israel, dealing with the coming kingdom, dealing with the Jews, as a, 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 preparing for the second coming of Christ. In fact, when you go back to Joel chapter 2, it makes it very clear what he's talking about. He says that in those days, he says, I, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy in the tribulation period before God comes back. It's going back on Israel just like it was in the Old Testament. They're going to dream dreams. God's going to deal with them in the Old Testament way. And the young men are going to see visions. And the servants and the handmaid are going to get poured out the Spirit of God. Well, it can't be Christians. You got the Spirit of God today. You got saved. And then if that wasn't enough, verse 30, wonders in the heavens, earth, Blood, fire, pillars of smoke. Sun shall be turned into darkness. Well, that didn't happen in the church age. Well, look at verse 31 at the end. All this is going to happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. You see, if you don't know the words and the words don't break it down for you and you just make the word collectively and you don't see the words as the key to the Bible, you ain't going to get anything out of the Bible. Somebody says, well, that's the church. Really? Look at verse 32. And it came to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Why, for me, it's, Acts, it's uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These people aren't saved. They're delivered. Oh, it's so easy. If you just follow the Bible. The key words of the Bible make it so easy. This prophecy of Joel is dealing with the second coming of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, when they're speaking in tongue, the Jews to other Jews, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy because the second coming of Christ was at hand if the Jews would have done what they needed to do and they did it in Acts chapter 7 and so then it gets postponed and it moves to the church age. It's just as simple as that. All right, chapter 3. Chapter 3. Another great study on the simple words. Verse 1. For behold, in those days, those days, 89 times you're in your Bible, you'll find the phrase those days, and every time you'll find it is a reference to the tribulation period. The definitive passage for those days is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. And from that point on, every time it defines it, and every time you find that those days in any place in your Bible, back up, the context will be doctrine of the tribulation period, without exception, without exception. Every time you find it, it'll be a picture of the uh, tribulation period. And I want you to see something else in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and look at 1 through 8. You know what you got in verse uh, uh, 9? You got a paragraph mark. Then you come from 9 up to verse 17 and you know what you got in 18? You got another paragraph mark. We talked about this last week. I talked about the night that Pam asked a question in the Bible study at Acts 20:36 about the uh, paragraph marks and why there are no more paragraph marks in the Bible after Acts chapter 20. And, of course, we gave you the answers because, officially, that's the end of the church age. If you'll find Paul there, when he's doing that, you know what he's doing? He's, he's, he's ending his ministry. He goes to Jerusalem in the next chapter and goes in jail and never does anything else. You ever notice the church that he's praying with here that he's leaving? It's the church at Ephesus, the first one found over there in Revelation when it started the church age. That's why. It's over. The rest of Paul's life is in prison. The church age, uh, the book of Acts is now over. The church age has started. It starts with the church at Ephesus, just where Paul prayed with him when he left, just like Revelation chapter 2, and off you go. So there aren't any more. But look at them here. 
Notice how they denote the context. Well, I'll tell you this. You want to break it down? Chapter 3, 1 through 8, the tribulation period, 9 through 17, the second coming, and 18 through the end of the chapter's millennium. All the three dispensations broken up by a paragraph mark. I'm telling you, that's the way it works. There's scores and scores of Bible chapters that break down just like that. They don't all do it, but there's many of them, and the ones that do will always show you the context if you focus on the words, the personal aspect of the words of God given to you. All right, look at verse 17, another great concept. So shall we know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, and then Jerusalem, then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. God, people just can't get the concept. They think that piece of land over there is holy now. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, I'm going to the holy land, I'm going to the holy land. I got news for you, pal. It isn't holy till the Lord comes back. That's when it becomes the holy land. There ain't nothing on this. You know what makes you holy and me holy? Because the Lord's inside you. And if the Lord ain't in it, it ain't holy. And right now, he's not over there, and that land isn't holy. The nation of Israel is in deep apostasy. They're, even though God's taking care of them, they're so far away from God, they're going to need a tribulation period and a great smack alongside the head to get them woke up. But you know what? It isn't holy. They aren't holy. The whole thing's unholy. The only holy thing on this planet is two things, this book and you, if you're saved, because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you. And I'm telling you, that's the way it works. And that land over there, we get playing around because we don't know the Bible, don't know anything about the Bible. And somebody says, well, this is the holy land. This is the holy, this is where Jesus walked. It's holy. Jesus may have walked there, but it isn't holy. That's where they crucified him. It'll only be holy according to your King James 1611 authorized version, the final, absolute final authority. When he comes back and takes up residency on the throne, then it will be holy. It'll be holy. Well, we learned a lot of things today. Let's stop and take a look what we learned at. We redefine the day of the Lord. We've done that before. But we talked about that. We talked about the word versus the words, plural. A very important concept. We talked about the two trumpets. One for the rapture of the church. One for the second coming of Christ. We talked about the former and the latter reign. And explained it in its entirety that we've never really done before. Other than just pieces here and there when somebody's asked a question. We looked at Joel 2 and compared it with Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost. Showing how that it wasn't for the church but for the nation of Israel. And then we looked at those days and how it always denotes and lays out for us the tribulation period. Six things. Six things. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Those six things took me probably four or five years to figure out in my scope. Of course I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I mean, money, you're a lot smarter than I am. I have a lot more ability than I have. Man, I was in the sixth grade so long, the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. <laughs> but many of you are smarter than that. You have a better intellect than that. You have a better, you're better trained in your mind than that. And I'll tell you what, what took me four or five years doesn't mean it has to take you four or five years. That's not the way God intended it. God wants to accelerate your understanding about the Word of God. God wants, doesn't want you to spend four or five years on that. He wants you to spend four or five years maybe on something else. He wants you to learn from the things that I've learned. He wants to take the time that I've spent going through things and laying things out to give them to you quicker. And I'm not kidding you. I gave you what took me probably four or five, three or four years to figure out. I gave it to you in one hour. Now, I didn't give you everything, and of course there's things, but I gave you enough that you had more than I had when I had it. You know, why do we do that? Why does God do it that way? I'll tell you why. And this really comes down to the whole thing we talked about earlier this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn to it. Just listen to me. He says, Paul, talking to Timothy, his son of the Lord, a young man that he had won to Christ, and he was responsible for teaching the Word of God, much like our relationship. And he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You see, that's the whole bottom line. My job is not to hold you up as long as I can, making you study it uh, longer than me so I can show you I'm smarter than you. My job is to already tell you you're smarter than me. My job is to make it easier for you than it was for me. That's my job. You know why? Because my job is to take what God has given to me and commit to faithful men and women. And then you're supposed to take it and do something with it in somebody else's life. That's the bottom line. 
I'm in no, I'm in no competitors here to hide truth from somebody because I'm afraid you'll learn it better than me and be better with it than me. I want you to be better than me. I want you to be smarter than me. I want you to be more spiritual than I am. I want you to be better than I am. You know why? Because I'm not always going to be around and somebody's going to have to take over and do what needs to be done. If not here, uh, God will bring us somebody. But the bottom line is, you know what? That's my job. My job is to train. My job is to teach. My job is to get you to the place where it doesn't take you what it took me. I look at God puts men in this world, and I'm not necessarily putting myself in this position, but I look at God put men in this world that he, he focuses on and he dumps things on and he puts things in for one purpose. I know the two men in my life that really taught me the Bible were men like that. And I'm not classifying myself as that, but I'm just saying I know that that's what God does. And he'll focus, and for whatever reason, he'll dump uh, on them stuff that he won't dump on anybody else because they have the ability to disseminate it. They have the ability to take people one-on-one -on -one and work with them and teach them and to show them. They have the ability to accelerate your spiritual growth. And what took me four and five years to learn probably took those guys 10 or 12 years to learn. But the bottom line is they learned it, I learned it, and now you've got to learn it. Because I'm telling you, and this is what we want to talk about on New Year's Eve. We can't just stay around here anymore. We have to be able, God, I've watched your lives. I've watched every one of you. I've watched God bring you in. I've watched God change your thought process. I've watched God deal in your life in areas that, that, that maybe you didn't want dealt with. And I've watched you respond to him in your own way, in your own fashion. Not everybody to the same measurement, but not everybody's the same. I'm saying is all I have seen out of this group is positive steps forward to learning and being what God wants you to do. Now it's time to go to the next stage. We have to begin to develop you as an individual with somebody else's life. You know what? We are like sponges. And if a sponge can only take up so much, and then if a sponge doesn't get wrung out, it just sits in the bucket and floats. And that's what's wrong with so many of God's people. They're sitting in the bucket floating because they're not taking what they know and wringing it out and letting the water fall on somebody else. We have to do that. You have to come to the point where you say, I am willing to teach somebody the Bible on whatever level. I'm willing to, I'm not talking about doing things out there, mowing the grass. I'm talking about sitting down and defining what ministry really is and letting the, over this next year, allowing God to prepare you to the next level. We have focused on all the basic concepts of teaching you the foundation of the Bible. Now it's time for the next level. As we still continue the basics, we have to refocus on shaping this thing to a point and taking any man and any woman who wants to be used in the ministry to touch people's lives with that book that I will get you ready in this next year on whatever level we decide where you're at. But that's where we need to go. Everything I've done for the last year and a half has had a goal behind it. I've not always taught it. I've not always laid it out. But in my mind, I knew exactly where it needed to go. We have to begin to raise up leadership in this church that is over and above the people that, can, that we have a strong base. As I said, when we started, we already had a strong base. Now we've doubled our attendance, and we have to take those people, add them to the base, and make a base that is able to take people in and work with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whatever their need may be in the Word of God. That has to be our goal. And that's what we have got to lay out. And I'm just saying this, that New Year's Eve, it's up to you. If you're here, you're here. If you're not, if you've got a better place to go, go. That's all I can tell you. I don't know what else to say. And yet it's a time to bring your lost friends, bring people who are unsaved because of the fact that we, 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 we're going to have a Bible study. God always blesses us at those times. And we just need to never take our finger off the outreach trigger of telling people and bringing them to the place where they can hear. And it's going to be decision time for our church. I really believe it. We've had a fun time. We've had a lot of Bible. You got more Bible in the last year and a half than most Christians get in most churches in a 10-year period. And I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you the truth. But I'm telling you this. There comes a time when you have to take what you learn and do something with it. And that's where we're at. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, we're going to be out of here in just a second, and we'll get on with...